This is a crowd podcast. Okay, there's things you need to know about this story. The places it's going to take you, the things you'll see in your head, the stuff you won't be able to forget. There's no happy endings with Sharon Tate. No logic. Silver linings? Not here. Not with this story. It's many things what you're about to hear. It's the death of a young woman, of a mother a week or two from giving birth. The murder of a film star, a wife and a daughter. But it's so much more too. It's madness come to La La Land. It's a cult leader gone crazy. It's bad drugs and messed up ideas and exploitation and carnage. It's a darkness descending over a town that's meant to be all sunshine and dreams come true. It might be the end of the 60s too. A few months left in a decade, but all its optimism and promise smashed and broken. A nightmare to smother the Technicolor daydream. And there's all these famous people mixed up in it. The beautiful people. Film directors, film stars like Steve McQueen. Rock stars, the Beach Boys, the Birds, the Beatles. So where do we start? Where it all ends with this twisted tale. A big house up in the canyons above LA in August 1969. A quiet road that leads nowhere else. There's a high gate, a low fence, fairy lights up on the wire, like it's Christmas, like there's something enchanted about it all. There's a curved drive up to the main house, a small guest house hidden beyond that, maybe 60 yards down the garden. It's cooler up here, above the city. You sleep with your windows open. You want the breeze in an LA summer. It's just after midnight. Most people are in bed, but people hear things over the road, down the canyon. About half a mile away, there's some girls from a local school. They're camping out. They're all asleep. It's the teacher wandering around the tents who hears the scream, who thinks he hears a man shouting, Oh God, no, please don't. That's what he thinks he hears. He can't be sure. It's faint. It's over, suddenly. There's another couple in a house up the road. It's their dogs going crazy that wakes them up. Hunting dogs, trained to respond to the sound of gunfire. But it's the cleaner the next morning who finds it all, who walks up to the gate, looks up at the telegraph poles and thinks, all those wires have been cut, who pushes open the back door and wonders why there's red paint all over the walls, smeared all over the floors, who takes another step and sees the first body. Here's what the cops find when they arrive a few minutes later. 
On the drive, there's a white car. There's a kid inside. Can't be more than 18. He's been shot and stabbed. On the lawn, a man in flares and a purple shirt, lying like he's been dropped from the stars. A mess of limbs and blood and great gaping wounds. 20 feet on, there's a young woman, brown hair, white nightshirt turned dark red with dried blood, dead from multiple stab wounds. They approach the front door. There's something written on the wood, a word smeared in blood, pig. Guns out now, held in both hands, out in front of them. Into the lounge, another body, a man, multiple stab wounds. A white nylon rope around his neck, tied to something on the couch. Someone, and they don't see her until they look over the back cushions to the front. And there she is flowery bikini top and pants, long blonde hair, long limbs. It's Sharon Tate, 26 years old, eight and a half months pregnant, stabbed, shot, brutalized. A mother, a week or two from giving birth. A film star, a wife, a daughter. But there's stuff we need to know, stuff we need to talk about. How these people have got here. What's happened this warm, sticky night? How this nightmare has taken over the city of sunshine. Why the devil is in the city of angels. This is not Sharon Tate's house. It belongs to a record producer and his actress wife. Remember them. We'll come back to them. She's renting it, this young woman, with her husband. Who is he? Roman Polanski, film director, maverick, sort of a superstar himself. He's 33 years old, Polanski, a long way from post-war Poland where he grew up from Auschwitz, where his mother died in the gas chambers. He's been making films in English for a few years now. Trashy ones, dark ones. Rosemary's Baby, about a woman pregnant with the devil's child. Him and Sharon meet on a real stinker of a film. It's called Fearless Vampire Killers. He directs it. She barely speaks. Looks blonde, mainly. That's all they want. But there's a spark between them, this skinny model from Texas, this brooding man from film school. He wants her in his films. She wants better roles than she has, so it sort of works. And they get married in Chelsea in West London. And they couldn't look more late 60s. He's in a velvet Edwardian suit with a big white ruff round his neck. Austin Powers, basically. She's in a white mini dress. That straight blonde hair, big lips, long eyelashes. It's all perfect on the surface. The beautiful people moving the world on 
a new way of living, a new way to be. But Sharon's a woman in the 60s. She's expected to look nice and say little, just like in her films. Roman can screw around. She's meant to shrug and smile. She says, we have a good arrangement. Roman lies to me and I pretend to believe him. Her films? She stars in one called Valley of the Dolls. There's a line her character says, I have no talent. All I have is a body. So that's where they are, these two. They go back to the States and hang around in LA, hang around with a record producer called Terry Melcher. He's the son of Doris Day. He's produced The Birds, Mr. Tambourine Man, The Mamas and Papas. He's dating another actress, Candice Bergen. Beautiful people. They've got this cool house up in canyons, above the city, always hosting big parties. Loads of people around, superstars, hangers-on, 60s weirdos. Sharon and Roman need somewhere to live. So they rent it for $1,200 a month. And they keep hosting parties and strangers keep showing up. When Roman goes back to Europe for a few weeks, he asks some friends to stay over with Sharon. Keep her company. You just want to be sure, right? Right. Now we need to talk about someone else. Charles Manson. Things are never normal with Charles Manson. When he's nine years old, he sets his school on fire. When he gets sent to a place for teenage troublemakers, he's knocked around by the priests who run it. When he goes to reform school, he runs away 18 times. Why? Because he's raped, say the rumors. Because he's beaten up, definitely. How does he cope? He does something he calls the insane game. Screams, waves his arms about, pretends to be going mad until they leave him alone. So he's in and out of prison all the time. By the time he's 32, he spent more than half his life in institutions. He tells the authorities, prison's my home. I want to stay here. But they let him out in March 1967. And he goes to San Francisco where it's all peace and love and hippies and acid and it all begins. He can manipulate people, Manson. Get them to do what he wants. He finds one girl, moves into her place, moves another girl in, then another. Soon, there's Manson, the first girl, and 17 others. Now, he's not Charles Manson, ex-con. He's a guru, a mystic. His hair is long, brown, curling round his face and beard. His eyes stare at you, into you. Now he tells his followers that they're the Manson family. Now he's telling them he's Jesus or something similar. He's the second coming. He's the truth and the light. They buy an old yellow school bus, fit it out with 
rugs and cushions, do these epic road trips out into the desert, taking acid, listening to Manson as he sits round the campfires and talks and pleads. The next connection, Dennis Wilson's the drummer in the Beach Boys. He's out in the desert too, driving to LA, high on booze and LSD, big beard on him, sun-kissed here. He picks up a couple of the Manson family, young girls, takes them back to his LA house, finds Charles Manson there the next day, treating him like a god, kissing his bare feet. So they hang out. Dennis knows Terry Melcher. They work together. So Manson meets Melcher and says, I'm a musician. You're going to record me? Now it gets weirder. Manson's round Dennis Wilson's house all the time. So are the girls. There's the two men, 20 girls, and a lot of drugs. The men record music. The Beach Boys release a Manson track as a B-side. The girls are treated like servants. The house is treated like a squat. The landlord kicks them out, so now Manson moves again. There's an old deserted ranch across town, sort of falling down. Used to be a movie set for westerns. It's owned by a half-blind 80-year-old. Manson says, we'll stay with you, and my followers will sleep with you for rent, yeah? It's here that Manson starts telling them stories, his prophecy. What's it called? Helter Skelter. And here's the next thing you need to know. Manson's obsessed with the Beatles. He doesn't just listen to them. He thinks they're listening to him. He listens to the White Album just out. And every song, he thinks they're singing about what's in his head, about his visions, about what he thinks is going to play out. Helter Skelter's a different kind of song, seriously heavy. Distorted guitars, crashing drums. It might be the first heavy metal song ever. It's about a fairground ride. It's Paul McCartney doing his Little Richard scream. It's John Lennon wigging out. Ringo shouting about blisters on his fingers. But not to Manson. When he's round the campfire at the ranch, talking, preaching, pushing the drugs, Helter Skelter is war. It's revolution. And it's coming down fast. Here's what he says. There's a racial apocalypse coming. He's going to release an album full of hidden messages just like the Beatles. It'll make young white women run away from home. It'll make black men attack white men. It'll make white men attack other white men and black men until there's no one left. Just Manson and his family hiding out in a secret city under the desert out in Death Valley. The last white people on earth ruling what's left. 
a new Jesus, your own personal savior. So he works on songs, Manson and his followers, the album that's going to trigger it all. They listen to Helter Skelter all the time because he says there's a secret code in there telling them the way to his secret underground city. He takes the songs to Terry Melcher, the producer, and Melcher, he wants nothing to do with it. No record deal, no production. So Manson stews. Manson wants revenge on the straits, on the beautiful people, on LA, on Terry Melcher. There's a kid from the South who joins the family. They call him Tex. Tex Watson. He listens when Manson says, Helter Skelter is coming. He waits for his role. He's ready. They're all ready. What's Sharon Tate got to do with all this? Nothing. That's the point. She just lives in Terry Melcher's house. Charles Manson hates Terry Melcher and he knows exactly where the house is. So, it's a warm, sticky August night up in the canyons, maybe the hottest night of the year. Tate's at home. There's three others with her. Jay Sebring, an ex-boyfriend, a famous hairdresser, does Sinatra, Paul Newman, Steve McQueen, wearing flares, a purple tank top. There's Abigail Folger, heiress to a coffee empire, 25 years old, brown hair, brown eyes. There's her boyfriend, Wojciech Frakowski, Polish playboy, mates with Roman Polanski, Sharon's husband, blonde hair, blue eyes, 32 years old. There's others invited, McQueen, music producer Quincy Jones. They cry off. There's always other things to do in LA on a Saturday night. So the four of them eat dinner, play music, some of them smoke weed. They don't think about a murder that happened the week before. A music teacher killed out in Malibu across town, stabbed to death. A message in blood left smeared on the wall. Political piggy. They don't know the main suspect lives on the old ranch with Manson, with the family. Why would they? And they don't know there's four members of the family walking towards their house right now. Tex Watson, Susan Atkins, Linda Kasabian, Patricia Krenwinkel. They don't know what Manson's told them to do, that he's told them to go to that house, told them to totally destroy everyone there. That's the phrase he uses, totally destroy. The other thing he says, do it as gruesome as you can. It's just gone midnight. Tex Watson climbs the telegraph pole outside the house, cuts the wires. He walks to the gate with the others. They think it might be alarmed. So they jump over a little grassy embankment instead, into the grounds. There's a car coming towards them up the drive. It's the teenager visiting his friend in the guest house out back. 
nothing to do with anyone else, with any of this. And Watson stands in front of the car and pulls out a revolver. He stabs him first. This innocent kid slashes at his hands, severs tendons, rips off his watch. Then he shoots him four times. Chest, stomach, chest, stomach. Now Watson walks to the house, opens a window, climbs in, opens a front door from the inside, lets the others in. It's Frykowski who wakes up first, the Polish playboy, shouts, what the hell are you doing here? And Tex Watson looks at him and says, I'm the devil and I'm here to do the devil's business. That's how it begins, the butchery. They find Sebring, the hairdresser. They find Folger, the heiress. They find Sharon Tate. You don't want the details. You don't want those images in your head. So just know this. Sebring is stabbed seven times. Folger is stabbed 28 times in the house by the pool as she tries to crawl away. She cries out, What are you doing? I'm already dead. Frykowski is stabbed 51 times in the lounge, on the porch, on the lawn. Sharon Tate, she begs to live long enough to have her child, to be a hostage so her child can live. They stab her 16 times. She dies on the couch, trying to cover her abdomen. And that's when they dip their hands in her blood, walk back to the front door and smear a single word on the polished white paint. Pig. You've heard enough? We all have, but not Manson. The next night, he takes the four murderers out in a car, brings two other followers with him, tells them they panicked before, tells them he's going to show them how to do it properly. This time, it's at a house next to one they used to party at. Two people they don't know, never met. A guy who runs a supermarket, a woman who runs a dress shop. They break in, tie the two victims up, put pillowcases over their heads, tie them on with lamp cords. This time, they kill them with a bayonet, stab him 12 times, stab her 41 times. Use a knife to carve another word into his mutilated stomach. War. Blood on the floor, on the ceiling, Words smeared on the walls. Rise. Death to the pigs. Something else on the door of the fridge. Helter Skelter. So none of it makes sense unless you're Charles Manson, unless you're playing his insane game. 
unless you're lost inside his nightmare, lost in the LSD, far from the lights, far from the angels. And nothing is the same again for anyone. Polanski, Sharon Tate's husband, the man who lost a wife, a child, he's in London when he finds out, rushes home, goes to the house, allows himself to be photographed by the front door, by the word pig, written in Sharon Tate's blood, tells Life magazine they can publish those photos. Hollywood panics, of course it does. There's drugs found in the house, weed, cocaine, MDMA, but there's drugs to be found at everyone's house. The stars begin to hide, to live behind high fences, electrified walls, behind bodyguards, no more open doors, no more open houses, no more sunshine and light. Instead, paranoia and darkness, panic, fear. It takes a while for the murderers to be caught. There's a month before the police begin to work it out, before the papers stop talking about sex parties and satanic rituals and the sins of the beautiful people. And when they go on trial, it's Manson on a stage of his choosing, who shaves his head and trims his beard to a point, who tells the reporters, I am the devil and the devil always has a bald head. Five of them are convicted, sentenced to life in prison, spared the electric chair by a Supreme Court ruling in an unrelated case. And Sharon Tate, the young woman, the actress, the mother-to-be, the wife, the daughter. This perfect 60s girl becomes eulogy for a decade of hope, for its excess, for things that were never her fault and should never have touched her. It's a boy, her child, when they find him. He died. 20 minutes after his mother, still in her womb, still with her hands trying to cover him. And Charles Manson? He lives on. He stays in prison where he says he always wanted to be. He writes prophecies and sends letters and messages to young women on the outside and carves racist marks on his own forehead with homemade knives. There's something else, he says, at the trial. Something else you can't forget in this story that takes you to so many places you don't want to go. He says, the music speaks to you every day, but you are too deaf, dumb and blind to even listen to the music. It is not my conspiracy. It is not my music. I hear what it relates. It says, rise. It says, kill. Why blame it on me? I didn't write the music. 
This episode of Death of a Film Star was written by Tom Fordyce and performed by me, Elroy Spoonface Powell. Spoon the voice guy. It was edited by Phil Brown. The music we used is from our partners, BMG Production Music. For research, we read Helter Skelter, The True Story of the Manson Murders by Vincent Bugliozzi and Kurt Gentry. And My Life with Charles Manson by Paul Watson. We also use the archives of the Los Angeles Times, New York Times, Rolling Stone, and the BBC. Watched several documentaries and rewatched the Quentin Tarantino movie, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. If this is your first episode, go back and listen to our episode about the last days of Marilyn Monroe. And if you want another series to listen to, check out Death of a Rockstar, which tells the stories of John Lennon, Elvis, and more. To find it, search for Death of a Rockstar in your podcast app. Thanks for listening. Crowd Network. A place where you belong. Hi, I'm Christina Yerling Biro, host of the podcast Pop Culture Confidential. Join me as I go way behind the scenes with some of the most influential people in entertainment and media. Hear actors such as Succession's Brian Cox talk about his favorite characters to play. There always has to be a mystery. The audience have to be in a situation where they want to know what's going on. Meet studio execs like Pixar chief Pete Docter and learn his secret on how he makes us cry. Emotion is our first language. And so many others who are defining popular culture, from Obama speechwriter David Litt to Top Chef host Padma Lakshmi. We don't often think about food politically or we don't want to, but it really is. Join me. Search for Pop Culture Confidential wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there. I'm Hannah. And I'm Audrey. We are a sister filmmaking duo and co-hosts of Sleepover Cinema, our show where we analyze the films that created the collective unconscious of the girls, gays, and theys of the late 90s and early 2000s. Princess Diaries, The Cheetah Girls, Aquamarine, Cinderella, the one starring Brandy. We haven't stopped thinking about these movies since we first saw them, and we want you to rewatch them and review them with us. Are these movies as bad as critics would have us believe? Do we even care if they are? We are always unpacking that very question on Sleepover Cinema. Check out Sleepover Cinema wherever you get your podcasts or at evergreenpodcasts.com. See you soon. Hello, everyone. My name is Matt Neglia, and I am the host of the Next Best Picture podcast, part of the Film Entertainment Awards website, nextbestpicture.com. On our show, we explore all year long what is possibly going to win Best Picture at the Oscars. We do this by conducting interviews with people within the film industry, holding weekly reviews of the latest theatrical releases, and on our main show, where we dive into various different topics, answer your fan questions, and also do our best to explore Oscar history's past in hopes that it will tell us something new for this upcoming award season race. We hope that you will join us on all of the various podcasting networks. We look forward to seeing you over at nextbestpicture.com. Hey, hey, hey.